0: Do you have your Bible with you, with you this morning? Would you turn with me to the book of Ezra, chapter 5, as we continue through this historical record of the renewal of the people of God by the power and the grace of God? And you can see, as the title on the screen, that renewal continues. The subtitle, God's Grace. Provides. And as we look at these verses this morning, I really do believe that that is exactly what we're going to see from this text, namely that God in grace, in mercy in unmerited favor, God in his covenant keeping faithfulness is going to do what would never happen if he did not act in grace. That's what grace is. Grace is the provision of merciful blessings that come to us through Christ that we would never experience apart from Christ. We would never experience apart from the loving, gracious act of God. Now, in a very real sense, everything that you experience in life is grace. None of you chose to be born. None of you chose when to be born. None of you chose which parents you would be born to or what city you would be born in. You did not choose what time in the history of the world you would exist. God gave you life when he chose to give you life. To whom he chose to give you life through at the time period and in the city and, and on and on that he desired. The air that you breathe is grace. We call this common grace. It's common grace because everyone on the planet experiences this grace. The air is there to breathe for all that are living. The sun is shining for all. The rain comes upon the just and the unjust alike. It's a common grace. The energy that you have to sit there this morning with ears to hear and a mind that can function and think. Did you give yourself the ability to do that? No. In your willpower can you muster up the ability to keep your mind sane and fixed in a rational way? No. What makes you different from someone who has a mental illness who cannot control their minds and therefore they um, cannot rationally look at the world? You did not make yourself superior than them. Everything that we experience in life is grace because we do not deserve it, but God provides it in mercy and love. And He provides this grace to us not simply. Uh, Not just in a simplistic way, as if we, you know, God is gracious, so He's going to show and give grace. But it is more complex than that. God is gracious and merciful by nature, but He is also just and holy. And so the way that you and I experience common grace, and even the grace that comes, that we're going to look at in this text today... And that we often think about as a saved and regenerated people. As the people of God. The covenant people of God in that special grace where we have the coming of the Spirit through the proclamation of the gospel. But this all comes to us through Christ. Jesus Christ suffered and died as a substitutionary sacrifice for sinners so that we could not only enjoy the common grace of air and food and clothing and the ability to think and move and have our being, but also the grace whereby we are saved and sealed until the day of redemption. As we turn our attention toward the passage at hand, I want us to understand and just preface the exposition by thinking about the reality of the history of the people of God throughout the centuries. Even into the Old Testament, the covenant people of God, even from Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The people of God have always experienced times and seasons of decline and renewal. Have you ever thought about that? When you read the Bible, one of the things that pops out from Genesis to Revelation is the fact that there are seasons. There are, um, as it were, dispensations of uh, periods of time when the people of God are either heightened in their faithfulness and obedience to God... And seasons of declension and decline where they drift from moral faithfulness and commitment to the commandments of God. This is all throughout the church history and all throughout the history in the Old Testament that we have recorded for us. We're studying about a time when God in judgment, because of the moral decline of the people of Israel, because of their disobedience, they had been carried away captive into Babylon. They were there for 70 years and God in grace, he did not have to do this, but his covenant-keeping, faithful grace came at such a time as he has appointed and he prophesied would come. He came and moved a pagan king to send the people of Israel back home. He moved in the people of God and stirred them to go back to their homeland and to rebuild the temple and reestablish Biblical worship as God had commanded them. He moved them to do this. And he provided for them. We learned that in the first sermon. In the second one we saw how God empowered his people to actually rebuild the altar. And to begin the foundations of the temple. We learned last week of how the opposition was there in the land. how the people of the land were in opposition to the people of God doing what God had commanded them to do. Now my friends, this is very relevant for our day in which we live. We live in a time, it's not in many ways unlike any other time in history, but we can clearly look out in our country and we can clearly see that there was a time when the people of God as a whole were more obedient, more faithful to the revelation of God in His Word than we see today that the culture is being shaped increasingly by secular, um, humanistic rationale, rather than the revelation of God, of Himself, through His Word and through His Son. And so there have always been times when there were seasons... Of heightened faithfulness to God in seasons of spiritual and moral decline. There have always been seasons of greater passion for God and His glory among the nations. A more central focus on the gospel of Christ and His majesty. There have been times when there have been a heightened thirst for the word of God and commitment to God's church. Through a local expression. In other words a local community of believers. There have been times when that was so. Off and on throughout the ages. But we live in a day and an age. And I'm borrowing something that I heard this week. But we live in a day and an age. Where if a pastor gets up. And tells you to turn in in your Bible. To Ezra chapter 5. And attempts to read a text and expound upon that text, people are yawning and falling asleep in the pew. But if a pastor gets up and says, That on the way to church this morning, God spoke to me, the people sit up on the edges of their seats, ready to write down what he has to say. My friend, The book of Ezra is a relevant book for our day. Our church and the churches of this nation and around the world need so desperately spiritual renewal. We need so desperately for God to stir the the, the unbelieving world. We need so desperately for God to stir His church to biblical faithfulness, to a love and a thirst for the Word of God, and for prayer, and for obedience to God's commands. We need that today. And we need it in ways that I am finding are more urgent than we realize. Can I say that again we need this renewal in a more urgent way than we realize let me stop and pray with you father we do need this to happen but we're not in charge of the seasons the times our times are in your hands oh god but we we want to pray That you will stir us with a love for your word. With a desire for prayer. With a desire for obedience to all of your commandments. With a desire to know you more deeply and more experientially. Not apart from your word, but through your word and by your spirit. And so let us simply pray to you today. Those who have a like mind. That you would come. And in our hearts today. Continue this work of renewing us. To biblical faithfulness. To faithfulness to the commission that you've given us. To preach the gospel and make disciples. Of those who are converted. Help us to be O oh God more passionate. And persistent in prayer. And God, we pray that you would strip from our lives the sins and the carnal, sensual desires that so easily beset us, that we may be the more ready and willing and submissive. To your revelation in your word. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. So what's going to happen in this text. Is a continuation of God's gracious provision. To renew his people. And to renew. His own worship. In Jerusalem. Setting the stage for what will come. Namely. The Lord Jesus himself. And the establishment of his church. Let me give you the outline. I think that sometimes does help. I want to give you three categories of provision that God gives to his people in this text in the midst of opposition. So, three categories of provision in the midst of opposition. Number one. So, so we have two provisions then we'll see how that these provisions are in the midst of suffering and opposition and persecution and have a final category of provision. So number one, he provides graciously his prophets. His prophets. This is a gracious gift of God. Ezra chapter 5 verse 1. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judea and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Jozadak arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem and the prophets of God were with them supporting them. So the first provision of God in grace in unmerited, unearned favor. And friends, how do, you, how do you help someone to feel the weight of grace? I, I, I can't. It's impossible. It, it, it's a spiritual thing. You, you must feel the weight of grace. Grace is the most humbling reality in this world. Why? Because when you come to a realization of your total and utter unworthiness of the goodness and the mercy of God, you are blown away that he extends it to you nonetheless in Christ. And so when I'm speaking to you today about God renewing his people spiritually, renewing his people back to the promised land, renewing his own worship in Jerusalem there, I am speaking to you from the depths of a heart that wants you to know and experience this grace yourself. And one of the provisions that God did for them is to provide for them the prophets. Haggai and Zechariah. The prophets in the word of God are often, character, are often spoken of as men sent from God. Because essentially that's what they are. A prophet is a man who has been sent from God to proclaim God's word to God's people or an unbelieving world. Now, this is a gracious provision. Why is it gracious? Because it is totally and utterly necessary in order for us to know the will and the heart of God. God has revealed himself in nature, but nature is not enough. There must be a revelation from God that helps us to understand who he is and what he is like. There must be a revelation from God whereby we can understand what God expects of us as his creation. There must be a revelation from God that helps us to understand our condition and fall into sin and separation from God and the provision of God for that sinful state. And how do we get that revelation? This phrase Thus saith the Lord. God speaks. In times past, he spoke often through the prophets. These men sent from God, speaking the very words of God, and not their own ideas, and not their own desires. Beloved, we need this today. We need these men today. I'm not saying we need these men in the sense of the Old Testament prophet That is filled with the Spirit in order to tell something that is coming in the future. What I am saying to you this morning is that we need men of God. Filled with the Spirit of God. Who faithfully exposit and proclaim the Word of God. We need these men. Men truly called and truly sent from God. There are false... Prophets, if, if you will, false preachers today, as there have always been, and we need a clear, a humble spirit-filled voice to take up the word of God and to faithfully proclaim it. That's what we need. It's a gracious gift. He provides his prophets. They're not only called men that are sent from God, but they're also characterized as men of God. In other words, quote, a man of God. Close quote. A man of God. Speaking of godly character and devotion to the true revelation of God in his word. That there is a. Not only a man sent from God, but a man of God. A man who is not embodying perfection, but a man who is endowed and empowered and filled with the Spirit to produce in him a godly character. A god-like character. A voice that not only speaks the truth, but lives the truth. Imperfect as they do. Nevertheless, the title, the prophet, was often a man sent from God. Who was thought of as a man of God. A man who truly had a relationship with God. Did you know today that one of the great dangers of the world are the men, and very often these days women, that are standing in pulpits? One, I, I, I said that very clearly. I didn't mess up. One of the great dangers of our world today are very often the men. And the women that are standing in the pulpits. Because these are people that would not be characterized as someone truly called and sent from the God of creation. And a man who is a man of God. Who knows God. Who truly has a relationship with God. Is that not the voice you want to hear? That's number one. Number two. The second provision of grace is that he provides his word. He provides his word. In those same verses that we looked at, implied by the fact that God has called and sent a prophet that speaks the word of God we have as an inference of the story that God not only graciously provides the man, but He also provides the content of His message. You see, the preacher's job has never been to create the message, but simply and faithfully to proclaim what he has been given The phrase it says there in our text that they came in the name of the God of Israel. He provided His word. And I marvel, I simply marvel at how easy Satan can persuade people away from simplistic as it may seem, a dogmatic unmovable conviction of the sufficiency of the Word of God. I marvel at how easy Satan can persuade people away from this. It's so sad how easy it is. And my friends, we're all subject to this pressure because of the culture that we live in. Because of the false doctrines that have crept into the church of Christ. It's so easy for us. To be lured away into other things that may not be inherently evil. But nevertheless distract us from that simplistic dogmatic conviction in the sufficiency of God's word. I hold in my hand the most precious physical gift. In the world, this book. The most precious. Without this, no one is saved. Without this, you do not know God. Without this, you will worship the idols of your own imagination. You will follow so easily a spiritual experience of a demon and call him a God without this book. So it is, it is a gracious provision, unnecessary provision. And as you see in our story, it was provided to the people of God for two purposes. Number one, God gives his word and the word gives rise to the work. The word gives rise to the work. He gives them the prophets who come who prophesied to the Jews in the name of the God of Israel who is over them. And what happens as a result of the proclamation of the word of God? Number one, it says that Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel in verse 2, and Jeshua, the son of Zadok, arose and began to rebuild the house of God. What happens through the proclamation of the word of God is that the word of God gives rise to the work of the people of God. The people of God have been given a charge, have been given a commission, have been given a responsibility to work. And it is the Word of God that gives rise to that work. Otherwise, how do we know what to do? (laughs) What should we do? What are we supposed to do? The only way we know is that God has told us in His Word. Let me quote for just a moment a little bit of a lengthy quote here from Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon. And uh, I love this. Quote, there are times. Now, we're thinking about the word of God giving rise to the word. There are times when solitude is better than society (laughs) and silence is wiser than speech. We should be better Christians if we were more alone. Waiting upon God and gathering through meditation on His Word, spiritual strength for labor in His service. This is the renewal that I'm praying for you and me and the church. That this will be what characterizes your life. We ought to muse upon the things of God because we thus get the real nutriment out of them. Why is it that some Christians, although they hear many sermons, make but slow advances in the divine life? (laughs) Because they neglect their closets and do not thoughtfully meditate on God's Word. They love the wheat, but they do not grind it. They would have the corn, but they will not go forth into the fields to gather it. The fruit hangs upon the tree, but they will not pluck it. The water flows at their feet, but they will not stoop to drink it. From such folly deliver us, O Lord. Close quote. How many of us are guilty? The stream is flowing at our feet, and yet it lies neglected. The fruit is hanging on the tree, but you must go and pluck it out. The wheat is there, but you must grind it. The Word gives rise to the work. Secondly, the Word gives support to the workers. Gives support to the workers. Look, if you will, at verse 2 at the very end, the last phrase the prophets of god were with them supporting them the word of god is a gracious provision of god and the word gives rise to the work and the word supports the workers my friend i would have i guarantee you this for a fact i would have long quit the ministry without the word of god i would have long quit There have been times when only a word from the Word of God, emblazoned by the Spirit of God, has kept me going. Jonathan Edwards, quote And yet, some people actually imagine that the revelation in God's Word is not enough to meet our needs. (laughs) Have you ever thought that? You say, Oh, no, Kevin, I would never think that. Well, let me me, me add a little something there that might help you think about this more clearly. Because I would dare to say that every one of us are guilty. Because if you have ever reached out in times of crisis and trouble and anxiety, in times of fear and despair to something else than the Word of God, then in that moment, by your actions, you are saying the Word is not sufficient. Let me go back. And you notice that this was Jonathan Edwards in colonial America experienced the problem that we're experiencing today. We, in many ways, there was a, in the Southern Baptist Convention, there was a, a, a thing called the uh, conservative resurgence. And the theologians and the pastors of that day they they prayed and they labored and God saw fit to renew his church to um, biblical faithfulness so that we didn't all become liberals who don't believe that the word of God is inerrant and infallible and inspired by God. And he preserved that for us. But I want you to know today that the, the struggle that we are facing today in many churches, Baptist churches and evangelical churches in America. Is not necessarily to say is this the inerrant word of God. But is this word sufficient? Is it enough for the people of God? Or do we need more? That is the battle. That is raging. And that's what he's saying. That's what Jonathan Edwards is saying. Okay, here he goes. They think that God from time to time carries on an actual conversation with them. (laughs) Chatting with them. Satisfying their doubts. Testifying to his love for them. Promising them support and blessings. And you say, well, I thought that was what he does. Not apart from his word. You, You take that home with you. Don't get mad at me. Just take it home and take that. What I just said. What I'm, I'm explaining. What Jonathan means. What Jonathan is saying. God does not speak to you apart from His Word, because the Spirit never works in contradiction or separation from the Word that He is inspired to be written. Never. I'm going to continue to quote. As a result, now this is this is the danger. Of what we're facing. This is the very danger. That all of us are facing. In in, in the 21st century. As a result. Their emotions soar. They are full of bubbling joy. That is mixed with self-confidence. And a high opinion of themselves. Look at me. The foundation for these feelings however. Does not lie within the Bible itself. But instead rests On the sudden creations of their imaginations. These people are clearly deluded. Now here's the end. God's word is for all of us and each of us. He does not need to give particular messages to particular people. He's already spoken to you. The biggest, one of the biggest problems that we face today. One of the biggest, biggest, biggest. You know, they talk about an elephant being in the room. You ever heard that phrase? Like, doesn't anybody see this elephant sitting in the room with us? The elephant in the room of a lot of evangelical churches. And I'm afraid, listen, I am so fearful that this is more rampant than what we realize. That people are actually attributing things to the Spirit of God. That have not come from God. People are associating their feelings and their emotions. That they have an ecstatic experience in the moment. And they attribute that to God. And it has not come from God. Every emotion is not an indication of the Spirit of God. The Bible tells us to test the Spirit. How do you do that? Answer The Word of God. The way you test the Spirit is the Word. Does your experience align with the Word? Does, is there anything in the Bible that gives indication that what you are experiencing would be something that comes from God? Is the emotion that you're feeling actually coming, actually coming on the wings of the revelation of God in His Word? Listen, my friend, there are thousands of people that are lifting up their hands and jumping up and down and singing praises to the name of Jesus, but it is not the Jesus of the Bible. It is a Jesus they've created in their own minds. True worship only rises on the wings of the revelation of God in his word. By his spirit. So when we sing, oh how I love Jesus, how great thou art, blessed be your name, amazing grace, if those words are not informed by the revelation of God in his word. And then as we sing them, the Holy Spirit is testifying to their validity in our own souls. It is not true worship. Two, two more things. Now, I'll be quicker. Lord willing. This, the, so those are the first, two, the first two gracious provisions. Provides the prophets, who provides the word. The work of the word is it gives rise to the work of the church or the people of God, and it supports and comforts and aids them and, and strengthens them. Now, in the midst of this gracious provision, I want you to notice in verses 3 and 4, the opposition. In verses, Beginning in verse 3, At the same time, Tatania, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozaniah and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, what are the names of the men who are building the building? But the and I love this phrase. This is what this is this phrase is why I chose the, the subtitle of this message. God's Gracious Provision. But the eye of their God on the elders of the Jews. And they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius and then answer be returned by letter concerning it. So in the midst of the provision of God and the work of God by the people of God, there is opposition. And my friends today, we are in the same condition. We have been called to proclaim faithfully the word of God. And we have been called to make disciples who make disciples in a way that is faithful to the word of God And there are challenges that we face. And if we sit idly by and we let our Bible sit in the dust on the shelves, we are not going to be faithful. But we are going to capitulate to the temptation of the gauge. And the world will do its destructive work. So in other words, they asked them, what authority do you have? Very quickly, I'll give you two answers to that question from the text. Number one, they had authority of the pagan king. If you go on and read the letter that they wrote and the resulting letter that was written back to these people, they had authority from a pagan king who said to them, you leave them alone and let them work. Number two, and more importantly, they had authority of the eternal king of kings. They had the authority of the eternal God of heaven who sent them back to their homeland to rebuild the temple. Number four. So that was the opposition is number three. Number four is he provides his favor. As we read, what does that phrase mean in verse five? But the eye of their God was on them, you know, (laughs) this big eye in the sky looking at them. Well, what does that mean? The favor of God. Was on them. When, when the Bible speaks about the countenance, uh, lift up your face, lift up your countenance upon us, that is talking about God looking at you in favor, God blessing you with His favor. I wrote down six things. Number one, He provides in His favor their protection to do His will. It's very important that you understand that last phrase. God will provide you, if you are his child today, protection to do his will. He's not going to provide you protection to do that which is outside of his will. And it may be God's will that you die in his service. But God will protect you. So long as it is his will that you live and thrive and do his work. Number two, his favor provides strength of resolve. Strength of resolve. Where did these people get the courage? Remember last week's sermon? They stopped. What makes the difference? Now I know that I'm reading into the text as it were. But I assure you this is the truth. The resolve... To stand firm and to strengthen their hands for the work comes by the gracious favor of God in their life. Just as we saw in chapters 1 in the beginning as God stirred some of the people to go back and to accomplish this work. It is the stirring of God that keeps you a Christian. It is not you, but you are kept by the power of God. What made you a Christian this morning, and when you woke up, so that you didn't say, forget all that stuff, I'm going to live my life my way the way I want to? The answer is God. That's why He gives us strength of resolve. Because there have been times I felt the pressures of hell, the pressure of my flesh and the desire to get out of controversy or the desire to get out of this difficult life and just say, man, it would just be so much easier if I would just not be so resolved in this area. Not so convicted in this area. But where do I get the strength to maintain that resolve? (laughs) It doesn't come from this weakened man, I assure you. It comes from the favor of. Of a gracious God. Number three. The favor of God provides the courage to stand up and to keep going. It's kind of similar but it is a little bit distinct that we have courage. Not only we have resolve but we have the courage to persevere. Number four. Also similar but, but yet there are nuances that I think are important. The favor of God provides for the people of God graciously a boldness to speak the truth. In love. You ever felt like saying something that you knew was true and then you didn't want to because you were afraid? That's what I'm talking about. What is it that makes the difference between Simon Peter? Who says, I don't know who that is. What are you talking about? Jesus of Nazareth? I'm not his disciple. I don't know him. What makes the difference in that Simon Peter and the Simon Peter on the day of Pentecost? What makes the difference between that Simon Peter and the Simon Peter and John who says unto the, the leaders of Israel whom they, they, these same men killed their master, and they look at these same men and they say, what are we going to do? Are we going to obey you or God? We but speak what, what we have been shown, what we have been taught. What makes the difference? Answer, God. God. The Holy Spirit In gracious favor. Gives him boldness to speak the truth in love. Number five. This favor gives us freedom of worship. Something our country has long taken for granted. We still have it today. And we need to exercise that freedom of worship. By the favor of God. And number six. And finally on this one. The provision for worship. The provision for worship verses 8 to 10 look at it very briefly if you would in verse 8 chapter 6 verse 8 moreover i make a decree so here's the answer that comes back to them moreover i make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the jews for the rebuilding of the house of god what do you want us to do king the cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue (laughs) <laughs> the tribute of the province beyond the river. In other words, we're going to take the taxes that you collect from the people of the land that is going to be for, you know, the taxes to, to do the things that you all do there in the land beyond the river, and we're going to take some of the tax money and we're going to use that very money to build the house of God in Jerusalem and to provide them everything that they need to worship God. <laughs> Our God owns it all. <laughs> he owns it all. You go you're you and I are gonna have exactly what we need to do his will. <laughs> and whatever whatever's needed. Verse nine whatever's needed bulls, ram, sheep, burnt offering, wheat, salt, wine, oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, that it be given to them day by day without fail. That they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. So God takes this king, this pagan king, and he provides for the people of God everything they need for worship. So let me close with a word of application of the gospel. I want to make an application in closing to the gospel. In our text, we see a story that reminds us of the grace of God for the salvation of sinners did you notice it you have a people that are god's covenant people as god created adam and eve in the garden of eden they were his creation they walked in fellowship with him but because of sin that relationship was ravaged and there was then a separation between the created man and woman and their creator god and god in grace provided a way of renewal through Jesus Christ. So that Jesus came to this world so that the people of God who have fallen into idolatry and sin and therefore are under the just wrath of God can be restored to true Worship can be restored to a peaceful relationship with their creator. And he moves by sending a preacher to tell the truth of the gospel. And to call upon sinners to repent and to believe. I simply ask you, will you today? repent and turn away from sin and believe on Jesus Christ. What he did on the cross of Calvary was to die as a substitutionary sacrifice. Let me pray with you. Lord, as we come to you in this this prayer, our hearts are, are overwhelmed by your grace. humbled to the dust that you who need nothing and no one would stoop to send your only begotten Son. To die in the place of those who deserved eternal wrath and hell. But we thank you for it. We praise you for it. And today I pray that everyone in this room will bow the knees of their hearts in submission to your Lordship. Would turn away from sin and would trust in the finished work of Christ. I pray that would happen for every soul in this room. I pray that all of us Today who know by the testimony of your spirit. And the love that we have for your church. The love we have for your word. The love we have for prayer. And your and the things of God. That you would strengthen our hands. By renewing our souls. In spiritual revival. We pray this through Christ and in His name and for His glory. God's people say, Amen.